If someone asks me about money in my own life, I, I would say something like this. I don't have a problem with money. I am a frugal Midwesterner. Right? We're a hardy people from there. Uh, and, and we know how to get by on, on little and scrape by. And, and, and so when someone compliments me about something that I'm maybe like uh, my haircut or a pair of pants, I will quickly tell you how little I paid for that item. And a lot of you are nodding because I've done it to you. A meme came around on Facebook like a month ago about how you know someone's from the Midwest. And very quickly it said, because if you compliment something that they have, they will tell you how little they spent upon the item, right? I am quasi-obsessed with the magazine Consumer Reports as only someone who is at least 78 years old should be, okay? Um, I, like, I know more about stick vacuums that I am not going to buy or about models of 2015 cars than, than I should. I don't know why. I like the grids on that. It's weird, but I kind of get into it, right? I have made trips wholly unnecessarily longer or unpleasant to find two cents cheaper of gas that by the time I made the trip did not matter that I saved the two cents in gas. But I would say it spiritually that I'm just being a good steward of the resources that God has given me as I judge and give a side eye to anyone who would do anything differently than me regarding money. We all have money issues, sort of like how we all have family issues. We all have money issues. Some of us carry lots of debt and it overwhelms us. Some of us can barely make ends meet or are living paycheck to paycheck. A bunch of us want the latest toys and the things that we see. We are worried about retirement. We are not sure how we'll pay for our kids' college or how we're continually paying for our kids' college that happened 10 years ago. Or our medical expenses are through the roof or we fear that they will go through the roof. My friends, this is a series for all of us. And let me tell you a secret about it at the outset. It's not really about money. It's not really about money. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really is your God. So what I want to ask this morning is to what does our heart cling to and confide in? Another way of saying this or asking is, what do you want? What do you want? Bruce Springsteen sang it famously in his song, Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart, right? Everybody's got a hungry heart, right? You remember the song? But anyway, um, but... But he's, he's, he's getting to the roots of it that we all have some deep hungers within us. James K.A. Smith, who's a philosopher, theologian, dynamo, he wrote this book called You Are What You Love, where I borrowed the title for this morning. He writes it this way. He says, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate the question is what you will love as ultimate, and you are what you love. 
Paul's advice this morning to Timothy in 1 Timothy is a warning. It's not just a warning to Timothy, but it's to help him understand the people that he will be ministering with, that he will be serving as he pastors and leads churches. And friends, these words from 1 Timothy sound really relevant because the desire for money and for material goods is not new. So I want to break down for you a couple verses in here. It starts, but people, it says they are trapped by many stupid and harmful passions that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's true, right? Trying to get rich consumes people. It becomes their entire goal. People lose families over this. They ruin relationships. They destroy their own lives. Right? This is the ethos behind every get-rich-quick scheme, behind every pyramid sales program, behind families fighting when the loved one dies all of a sudden. It even lies behind selling drugs or selling one's body. And those extreme examples of people ruining their lives because of money, they help us to say, well, that's not me. I'm not ruining my life in that way, so I must be fine. But Paul continues, right? He says then that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And once again, we can say a hearty amen. We hear the, but you need to hear the passage correctly. Paul doesn't say that it is money that is the root of all kinds of evil. He says it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. For friends, greed is the underbelly of this whole thing. It overtakes people, it makes us long for more, and it is an insatiable hunger. Thus Paul can write, Some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves, strong words, with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. This love of money and this eagerness to be rich, Paul is saying, ultimately isolate us from God and isolate us from one another. For this pursuit of wealth replaces any pursuit of God. And you might be sitting here saying, I'm not impaling myself with the love of money. Good thing, that would really hurt, right? So this preacher is going to go on about money for six weeks? What can he say for six weeks that is relevant to me? Well, friends, I believe that our relationship with money and with our economy goes largely unchecked in our way of life. But we find ourselves worried about the next recession. We find ourselves obsessed with things like mortgage interest rates or housing values. We find ourselves longing for the next exciting item or toy or the next shopping trip or the next Black Friday or Prime Day. Philosophers and theologians describe how we all work in our lives towards an end. The name for this end that they give is a telos, T-E-L-O-S. When we look towards an end, we live with this end in mind. James Smith writes this, he says, to be human is to be for something, directed towards something, oriented towards something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something, after something, It's not just that I know some end or believe in some telos. More than that, I long for some end. I want something and want it ultimately. It is my desires that define me. In short, you are what you love. Friends, if it is your desires that define you, well, then we better figure out what our desires are. 
Many of, us, many of us, if we were asked about our priorities in life, we would say that God registers up there somewhere. We might say that in our top five is our faith or that we're connected to a church. But Jesus gives us a challenging call to what we love and desire in this piece that I read from the Sermon on the Mount. A great perspective of this passage I read from Matthew 6 this morning is that this is the section where Jesus is kind of explicating what it means when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. That, that this section I read is really the part where Jesus is saying, here's what it means when you pray, give us this day our daily bread. So Jesus is saying that prayer for God's provision is ultimately lived out by not worrying about clothing or by food. Rather, it's trusting that God is going to provide, just like he does for the birds of the sky and for the lilies of the field. And then he offers this really convicting call towards the end of this passage. And in the common English, the, the verse reads like this. He says, instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these things, meaning food, clothing, the needs that you have, will be given to you as well. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness. This might be translated best. Instead, continually be desiring God's kingdom and God's righteousness. This is the ultimate life quest of disciples. To move towards this telos, this ultimate goal of God's kingdom, of God's reign. That should be our ultimate desire. We hear it in scripture all the time, this desire for God above all else. In Psalm 42, we hear, as the deer craves for streams of living water, so craves my soul for you, O God. Psalm 63 begins, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we read those things and we hear them, but when we're honest with ourselves, we don't hunger and thirst for the things of God like those psalms. We often find ourselves distracted and given over to other desires, other wants. James Smith, in, in his book, he talks about a particular challenge in his life where he recognized that he needed to make a change in his eating patterns for both health and for moral and ethical reasons. He knew this change that he needed to make in his head, and he was reading about it a bunch because he's a philosopher and theologian. In fact, he was reading a book by Wendell Berry about agrarian practice and farming while sitting in the food court of Costco. And that's where it caught him by surprise, right? He knew it, what he needed to make in his head, but making that change in his real life was another thing entirely. He writes, we learn to crave things that aren't good for us because we are immersed in systems and environments that channel us into this sort of eating. Our hungers are being trained and habituated automated without our realizing it. The same is true for our deepest existential hungers, our loves. We might not realize the ways we're being covertly trained to hunger and thirst for idols that can never satisfy. So friends, we place our hope all too often in things that do not satisfy us. Money will not satisfy us. Look at the number of celebrities with all the money of the, in the world and zero contentment whatsoever. 
Sex will not satisfy us. Look at the addiction that people have to pornography and misplaced sexual desire. Friendships will not satisfy us. People will let us down. They don't fill that ultimate void that we have. So first we have to ask ourselves, what do we really want? Like deep down in our gut, want. What is our life pointed towards? How are we oriented? Because our life is either pointed towards God, or it is towards an idol masquerading itself as God. So I encourage you this week to do a little bit of a love audit, to take some time to examine where your energy was placed and where the worries and pinch points in your heart are. I think if most of us are truly honest, we will find that we are not desiring first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And here's the issue. We all know that we should. We might even try to study the Bible more and let God's word seep into our heads. We make sure that we are regular attenders of worship so that we can understand and comprehend what we must do. But have you ever noticed that even though you know what you should be doing, that it doesn't really change your behavior? That's because your wants, your desires, are not just a head thing. Following Jesus is a gut thing. It's a deep down within us thing. So what we need to change is not our intellect. It is the very depths of who we are. A lot of our Christian education, even the word Christian education programs, have been geared at understanding the faith, where faith becomes something that we do with our head. And what I'm telling you today is that I think a bunch of y'all understand it with your head. A bunch of us do. And yet, something deep within us that needs to change our habits and how we, how we live in the world and operate needs to go on. And, and, and that goes way deeper than just comprehending that we need to switch it up. When James Smith talks about this, he talks about how he was able to confront the issues in his life about the way he ate. He said first he had to become part of a covenant community, something that would hold him accountable and where they formed a covenant with each other. In this case, it was with his wife about needing to eat differently and change his patterns. He's, and he's also called the covenant community that he had the Weight Watchers app on his phone. He said, although that is a commodified reality, he said, there is the wisdom of a lot of people that have formed that thing and figured out how many points such and such thing is and how to work on that, right? So he said that was a covenant community that he was part of. And the second thing was he had to be committed to new disciplines, which he describes as practices he didn't want to do. Discipline, a practice you don't want to do. We know about disciplines. I wanted to be able to play a virtuoso classical piano, especially late elementary school, middle school, but I had no part in wanting to play scales and practice them. Thus, you might say, well, you do a pretty good job over there at the piano, but you notice the types of things that I do not play. And it's because somewhere around the eighth grade, I just gave that up and hung it up. 
I said, I'm not going to do that. I do not like practicing the scales and making it happen. And the reason why you have to practice the scales so much and get them down is that eventually they become part of something you don't have to think about. They become part of a muscle memory. It's like practicing swinging a baseball bat over and over so that when it's an outside pitch, you take it to right field instead of trying to pull it over to the third baseman, right? Like, I liked doing that in high school, clearly, um, but I did not like practicing my scales. It was something I didn't want to do, so those habits did not get ingrained into my fingers. For us to have the right desires, we have to take on some disciplines. We have to change our muscle memory in order to change the things we want. So James Smith talks about being someone who didn't really exercise, and he took on a discipline of running, right? Which is like the hardest one to take on right away if you haven't been doing anything. And he talks about its awfulness in the beginning. How it was just terrible to go for a run and how he would like start on the downhill and then he would just be like panting on the uphill. And those of you who have tried that, like you know, you know what he's talking about. But then he writes this. He says, the practice gave birth to a habit that in turn made me want the practice and what the practice promises. I have new cravings. I have new cravings. Friends, I could stand up here for 10 years of preaching ministry. You could sit under me for 10 some odd years, hear my preaching, and tell you that following Jesus should be the most important priority in your life. In fact, I've been doing just that for over four years. And so have pastors who came before me. I guarantee you that they have been telling you that following Jesus should be the most important thing in your life. But the reality is this, listening to my preaching doesn't change your desires. It doesn't change them. It changes what you know they should be, but it doesn't change the actual how you react and how you behave, right? You might know some more things. You might be articulate about what needs to change, but listening doesn't change your desires. Our desires are changed when we take on disciplines that become habits that change the way we operate in the world where we become people who simply are generous, who are gracious, who are patient. Friends, this is what the fruits of the Spirit are. We don't think our way into being loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled people. When we make a decision, we shouldn't need to say, well, what would a faithful or a gentle person do in this scenario? We should be just operating out of that in our ideal, right? Hopefully, regular worship becomes a practice that begins the process of changing your desires, of shaping your wants. Friends, when you come into this space, my hope it is not just to hear a message, but it is to begin to practice something that forms you. This is why our worship is formed liturgically in the way that it lays out on your page. We confess sins every week because it forms us to do that. You can go to a bunch of places where you do not confess your sin every single week. But it forms us to do so, and it forms us that every time after we confess sin, you hear words of forgiveness and pardon. You don't have to sit there and wallow in your sin but we confess our shortcomings before God and we hear that God forgives us, that we are a people who are formed by grace and forgiveness and freedom. Friends, we receive 
forgiveness at the table and receive God's grace weekly here because it forms us to do so. This ain't just snack time with Jesus, okay? This is like real, it's a real encounter with God's grace and presence that forms us. We repeat prayers, sometimes some of them every single week. A lot of them you hear in the communion liturgy, not so that they're rote, but because it forms us to do so, to repeat these things. It habituates us and forms in us new desires. Because, friends, what I want for you is what Paul calls in this First Timothy passage the life that is really life. That's what this series is all about. And we cover up the life that is really life by going after the wrong things. Listen how Paul closes this letter. He says, tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous and to share with others. When they do these things, they will save a treasure for themselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way they can take hold of what is truly life. Friends, the life that is really life is not just Paul talking about heaven and the hereafter. It is a life of purpose and joy and contentment and peace. It is all of the things promised by money that money doesn't actually bring. So I ask you today, what is your vision of the good life? Your vision of the good life, whatever you picture that is, is ultimately the telos, the end that your life is driving towards. May we begin the process of aligning our lives to God's vision of the life that is truly life. Would you pray with me? God, our desires, our wants, those things that are deep within us that drive who we are, sometimes when, when, when we get down to it, um, they, they scare us because they are not what we want them to be. God, we are, we, we are formed continually in a culture that says that money and sex and power are, are, are the gods to which we should aspire. And yet what we want to do is be formed here in this place and in this community to be people who aspire after your kingdom first, who desire your kingdom, and because of that, it places things like money and sex and power in their proper places. It helps us redefine how we view all of those things. So God, give to us not just ears to hear, but guts to respond. Hearts deep within us willing to change and shift and that are willing to do so to encounter and enter into disciplines and practices that we don't want to do in order that you might change our hearts. For it's in God's holy name we pray. Amen.